Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. Our study today is entitled, How Many Divine Beings? In our study, we're going to be dealing with the answer to this most vital and important question. A question that deals with understanding who we really worship. In order for us to fully understand, we are going to consult inspiration. We're going to consult God's Word, the Holy Bible. This will be our textbook in our study today, and we're going to be using it extensively. Not only that, but we will also consult inspiration as it is found in the spirit of prophecy. This important question needs to be answered accurately and decisively. And the only way we can do that is by consulting the accurate and decisive and authoritative source of this information. That is the scriptures. We're going to be looking at a number of scriptures today, so I pray that you will Pay careful attention as we look and see how we can rightly divide the word of truth as we seek the answer to this question. The importance of this aspect is brought out to us in the book of Revelation. This tells us what the final contest and issue will be all about. We read about it in the first angel's message recorded in Revelation 14, 6 and 7. We know that in Revelation 14, verse 6, we see an angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, and he speaks to the whole world. Let's read it together in verse 7. Saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Here we see that the first angel's message has to do with the issue of worship. We must understand who it is that we worship. The identity of who we worship has everything to do with whether we fail or pass in the final contest. Not only in the first angel's message is this brought out, but also continuing through the three angels' messages. This is of particular importance, especially if we understand that this message is the last message of mercy to the world. Let's look at the third angel's message and see how the issue of worship is again the emphasis and the issue that is brought out in these verses. Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 and 10. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, if any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And verse 11, And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. This fearful warning regarding the worship of the beast and his image is given in such language that everybody should pay attention to it. It is talking about the wrath of God which will be poured out without mixture, without any uh, dilution, without any mercy mixed with it on those who worship the beast and his image. It is vital for us to understand who we worship. The issue is of vital importance to our salvation. We are living at this very time right now. That's why it's important for us to answer the question of who it is that we can worship, that the Bible instruction reveals to us. Not only that, but how it is confirmed in the spirit of prophecy. In order for us to really understand what the issue is all about, in worshiping the beast and his image, it's important to understand who the beast really is. For hundreds of years, this has been understood by Protestant believing Christians to be the identity of the papal system the system that is the Roman Catholic Church, which has been used over the years by the enemy to bring in deceptions upon the world. We will not take the time here to go to a Bible study to prove this, but we want to build on this fact and see how that contest will be played out in the last days. We read about this description in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 4. It says, And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Here we see that the contest of worship is brought out to a point that the whole world will be led to worship the dragon through this false system that is referred to as the beast. It's also referred to by many titles and names in the scriptures. It's referred to as the great whore, Babylon, the mother of harlots. It's referred to as the little horn, and it's also referred to as Antichrist power. This system, as we have seen, is the one that is used by Satan to confuse the issue of worship for God's people and for the world in the last days. 
We read about that further in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the earth of the world. This scripture reveals to us once again what the issue is all about. The issue is all about worship. Friends, it's important for us to have the Bible answer for this issue of worship. It's important for us to understand who we can safely worship. This is what our study is all about. Because this, as we have seen, is the issue of contest and contention in the last days. What we're going to do now is we are going to consult the scriptures with the purpose of determining and finding out what instruction the scripture gives us when it comes to worship, that is, who we can safely worship, and we're also going to see examples of people carrying out this instruction to confirm for us that indeed this is something needful for us to follow. This will help us to determine who we can safely worship and who we are not to worship. Let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 4, the story of the woman at the well. And Jesus was speaking with the woman and he deals with this issue of worship. Reading verses 21 and 22. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Here we see that Jesus was not commending ignorance when it comes to worship. He said to the woman at the well, Ye know not what ye worship. We know what we worship. God wants us to have an intelligent knowledge of who we worship, so that we might worship Him aright. This is what the true worshipers will really do. As we look at the next verse, verse 23 says, But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship Him. Here we see plainly instruction given to us by Jesus Christ, the highest authority on the topic, giving us instruction that we can safely worship the Father. He says the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. This is vital for us because we need to make sure that the scriptures reveal to us plainly everything regarding this point. You see, it would not be fair of God to tell us and give us such dire and serious warnings in the book of Revelation without revealing to us where the truth really lies. And this is what we're finding so far. God has revealed to us the truth about who we worship. Not only that, but He gives us in the scriptures examples of those who carry out this instruction. Let's just look at a few of them. The first one is in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Here we see the Apostle Paul carrying out the instruction that Jesus gave. He worshipped the Father. He worshipped Him in Spirit. This is not the only place that we see such example. We read about it again in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 14. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's plain here that Paul followed the instruction that Jesus gave. This is a double testimony that assures us that it is vital and safe for us to worship the Father. We must know who we worship. The wonderful thing about the scriptures is it doesn't only give us examples of people on earth following this instruction. It also gives us examples of heavenly beings who also follow this instruction. You see, God wants the worshipers on earth and in heaven to be in harmony in their worship. Let's read about such an example in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 14. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. Here we see plain example given to us that the beings in heaven worship him that liveth forever and ever. This is none other than the Father himself. What a wonderful testimony in the scriptures that even the beings in heaven understand who really is to be worshipped, the Father. This is something we must keep in mind because this is an issue that will be confused by the deceptions of Satan. Does the Bible stop there when it comes to the issue of worship? Or does the Bible give us further instruction? Is there anyone else that we are to honor in the same way as we honor the Father? The answer is yes. The scripture gives us the answer. This is vital. And it's important to understand that God has given us clear instruction over this issue. We read about this in John chapter 5 and verse 23. That all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. 
He that honoreth not the Son honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. Here we see Christ revealing to us instruction given to him by his Father that we are to honor him in the same way that we honor the Father. This extends to our worship as well. This is due to the fact that he is the only begotten Son of God, an inheritor of the divine nature, and as such worthy of our praise, our worship, and our thanksgiving. You see, only a divine being can be worthy of worship and praise. Only a divine being can be worthy of our adoration to receive our prayers and our loyalty and our supreme worship. This is why when we look at the issue of worship, it helps us to understand who or how many divine beings there really are that we are called upon to recognize according to the scriptures and inspiration. Now let's look at some examples of people carrying out this instruction of honoring the Son in the same way that they honor the Father, even to the extent of worship. We read about a story of the blind man who Jesus healed and the Pharisees cast him out of the synagogue. In John chapter 9, we read from verses 35 to 38. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Here we see instruction being carried out. The man worshipped Jesus. It's important to understand something here. Of all the questions that Christ could have asked this man, he asked him one vital question. He said, do you believe on the Son of God? You see, there is a link between the Sonship of Christ and him receiving worship and adoration and praise. It's his Sonship that actually qualifies him to be all that he really is as the only begotten Son of the Father. When the man recognized that Christ was the one speaking to him as the Son of God, the Bible says that he worshipped him. Here we see plainly that it is safe and needful for us to follow this instruction and this example given to us. But you know what? This is not the only example given to us in the scriptures. We have other examples. Let's look at another one, also recorded for us, of people on earth carrying out this instruction. Matthew chapter 14, verse 31 and 33. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. Here we see another evidence that the Sonship of Christ is linked with worship that goes to him. These are examples of people on earth, those who believed and followed the instruction of Jesus Christ. The wonderful thing is, God has not given us only such examples. He also shows us examples of heavenly beings who are also instructed to follow this instruction. We read about it in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 6. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. This instruction refers to none other than Christ Jesus. Once again, we see the link here between the fact that he is the only begotten or the first begotten and the fact that he deserves worship and praise. In the same way here we see a double testimony given to us of beings on earth and beings in heaven who also worship and recognize and honor the position of the Son and they worship Him as they worship the Father. The question may be in some people's minds, are we then worshiping two gods? And the answer needs to be clarified once again from the scriptures. You see, it's important to understand the position that the Son holds. It's important to understand His relationship to His Father. That the Father is the one that the scriptures refer to as being of whom are all things, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6. This description of the Father means that He is the great source of all. Everything is of the Father, and ultimately everything returns back to the Father, even praise, worship, and adoration. You see, Jesus told us that He is the only way to the Father. All the praise, worship, and glory that Jesus receives ultimately glorifies the Father Himself the one true God of the scriptures. This is why when we recognize the position of Christ and worship Him, we are really honoring His Father. This is the highest and best way that we can honor the Father in recognizing the fact that Christ is His real Son, begotten of Him and inheriting His divine nature. 
We read about this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. It says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't that plain? When we recognize and worship Christ and confess that He is Lord, it brings glory to God the Father, the great Head of all. This is how we can truly obey and follow the first commandment. This is how we can truly obey and follow the instruction of the first angel who says, Fear God, give glory to Him, and worship Him. This is the correct way to worship God. God has revealed to us plainly in the Scriptures that He is the only true God, the Father. We worship Him, and we saw examples of that. And His Son is also to be treated in the same way, to be honored in the same way. And then the Bible doesn't give us any more instruction as to anyone else that we are called upon to worship. This is important because it means that only the Father and the Son are the divine beings who are worthy to receive our adoration and our praise. There are no other divine beings, else the Scripture would have given us instruction to recognize them as well. This is a vital point, and it's on this very point that Satan is causing confusion. We need to remember that the purpose and the desire of Satan is to gain the worship of people. Satan has always been desiring worship that does not belong to him. And Satan is the only other being who has stood up to claim worship in such a rebellious, outright manner against the government of God. He desired to be like the Father and the Son in receiving worship. We know this because he actually requested Jesus to do that very thing in the temptation of the wilderness. Let's read about it. Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Again the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. What a preposterous request. Satan was making of Jesus. You see, Christ was the creator of Satan. He created him perfect, of course. He did not create him as Satan. He created him as Lucifer, the light bearer, perfect in all his ways. But Satan corrupted the wisdom and beauty that was in him. And so he turned from being Lucifer, the perfect being that God created, to Satan, the adversary, the enemy of God and man. Here we see Satan expressing clearly his purpose and his desire. He wants to be worshipped. You see, this is why the scriptures gives us plain instruction as to who we can worship and who we are not to worship. Jesus, in giving the answer to Satan, confirms to us what we have found so far in the scriptures. Let's read the next verse, verse 10. Then Jesus saith unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. This, this answer of Jesus that dismissed Satan from his presence confirms the truth that there is one God and that we're to worship him. Jesus was referring to his Father. You see, as we said before, all the glory, praise, and worship that Jesus receives ultimately glorifies the Father. This is who the first angel's message is all about. And it's vital for us to understand this so that we might not be deceived into worshiping Satan because he still desires worship. It's important to keep in mind that the absence of any other instruction when it comes to worship outside the Father and the Son means that when we presumptuously step over that line and give worship to anyone besides the Father and the Son, then that worship will be claimed by the one who is desiring worship, but who should not get it. That is the enemy. This is a vital point to keep in mind. The Bible speaks to us plainly regarding worship, and it would be foolishness for us to presume to give worship where the Bible is silent, because the issue in the last days is over-worship, and the deception in the last days is over-worship. That's why the Bible has revealed plainly who we are to worship, and it gives us where we stop. There is no worship instruction given to us outside the Father and the Son. We need to be very careful with that. Let's see how Jesus, in His instruction with His disciples, confirmed the fact, time and again, that He and His Father alone are the only divine beings that we are to recognize as such. We read about it in John chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. Do you believe in God? Believe also in Me. Here Jesus was comforting the hearts of His disciples. 
How many should we believe in in order for our hearts not to be troubled? According to Jesus, it is two. The only two divine beings that we are called upon to worship, praise, and glorify, the Father and the Son. Again, Jesus confirmed the same thing in John chapter 17 and verse 3, where he says, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. What is eternal life all about? It's about knowing two beings, the only two beings who are divine, the only true God, that's the Father, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Friends, this is a tr an eternal life issue. This is a life and death issue. Our salvation is dependent on having a relationship, a deep personal relationship with only two beings. This confirms the instruction that is given in the Bible. Some people, in looking at this instruction, might question the point of the Father and the Son being two beings. But this is exactly what Jesus taught us. His instruction is very plain regarding this point. Let's look at one example in John chapter 8 and verses 17 and 18. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that bear witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. Here we see Jesus plainly teaching that Him and the Father are two. They are two individuals, two individual beings, both possessing the divine nature, both worthy of our worship, our praise, and our thanksgiving, and no one else. This instruction that is given in the Scriptures is also confirmed in the spirit of prophecy. We're going to look at a few statements, and then we're going to look at a, much more statements towards the end that will confirm what we have found so far. These statements might come as a revelation to you, but if you understand the import of this message through the spirit of prophecy, you will pay heed and give ear to the instruction that is contained in these statements. Notice, for example, from the Youth Instructor of December 16, 1897. We read the following. From eternity, there was a complete unity between the Father and the Son. They were two, yet little short of being identical. Two in individuality, yet one in spirit and heart and character. What a beautiful statement. The Father and the Son are two, a little short of being identical. And they are united in one spirit. This is really the Spirit of God that we're talking about. The two beings, the Father and the Son, are united in one spirit. And there are no other divine beings that the Bible or inspiration reveals to us. This point is brought out time and again in the scriptures. Let's look at another example in the Old Testament that deals particularly with the plan of salvation, the formulation of the plan of salvation, and how many were involved in the formulation of that plan. We read about it in Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord, even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. What a beautiful prophecy about Christ, referred to as the branch in this passage. He's the one that will bear the glory. He's the one that will build the temple of the Lord. And he's the one that's going to be a high priest in that temple. He is doing that right now. The Bible here talks about something called the Council of Peace. This Council of Peace is the plan of salvation that was formulated in order to restore peace and harmony between us and heaven after we fell. The Bible says that this Council of Peace was between them both. Two individual beings were involved in this council the Father and the Son, the only two beings that we are to worship and praise. Once again, this fact is confirmed in the spirit of prophecy. Let's read a few statements that will shed some wonderful light on this vital and important aspect of the Council of Peace. In Patriarchs and Prophets, page 63, we read the following. Before the Father, He, Christ, pleaded in the sinner's behalf while the host of heaven awaited the result with an intensity of interest that words cannot express. Long continued was that mysterious communing, the counsel of peace for the fallen sons of men. This is a direct quote from Zechariah chapter 6 and verse 13. But this is not the only place. Let's look at another one that says the same thing. Desire of Ages, page 834. 
Before the foundations of the earth were laid, the Father and the Son had united in a covenant to redeem man if he should be overcome by Satan. They had clasped their hands in a solemn pledge that Christ should become the surety for the human race. This is what the scripture talks about when it says the council of peace was between them both. This covenant, this clasping of hands as a surety was performed by the Father and the Son. Friends, this is really the plan of salvation. And the credit and honor and glory in this plan of salvation goes to the Father and the Son. Let's read some more and see if there is any more instruction and revelation given, particularly on this point. In Signs of the Times of 1897, we read the following. In the plan to save a lost world, the council was between them both. The covenant of peace was between the Father and the Son. This is such a plain statement, it doesn't need any comment. The covenant of peace, the council of peace was between them both. Once again, we read further how this is clarified and confirmed by numerous testimonies in the spirit of prophecy. Notice what it says in Heavenly Places, page 12. The plan of redemption was arranged in the councils between the Father and the Son. Again, same testimony confirmed through the council of the spirit of prophecy. Friends, the reason why we're giving so many statements is that we need to understand what is said time and again. We need to go by the weight of evidence. This is not just a solitary statement that was mentioned. We are seeing a consistent chain, a consistent buildup of evidence that supports the same truth that we have found in the scriptures. Let's read one more and see how this consistent chain carries on. In Ministry of Healing, page 429, even the angels were not permitted to share the counsels between the Father and the Son when the plan of salvation was laid. What a wonderful description. Even the angels could not enter into the council between the Father and the Son. You see, the angels are not divine beings. They are created beings. They are finite. Only the Father and the Son are divine. Only they could counsel together in order to lay the plan to save mankind in which Jesus volunteered to come and give His life for us. Let's read another beautiful description of this wonderful event once again. In the Youth's Instructor of 1900, we read, Father and Son are pledged to fulfill the terms of the everlasting covenant. You see, the everlasting covenant is between the Father and the Son, and both of them are pledged to fulfill the terms of the everlasting covenant. This is ample proof from the scriptures and the spirit of prophecy regarding how many divine beings particularly involved in the plan of our salvation, in formulating it and in carrying out. This truth will be recognized by those who will be redeemed in heaven. The redeemed of heaven will recognize that the credit and the praise and the glory that is as a result of the plan of salvation will go to those who formulated that plan. It will go to them both, to the Father and the Son. Let's read how this credit is given in the book of Revelation by the redeemed host who understand this truth. Revelation 7 verses 9 and 10. And after this I beheld and lo a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands and cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God which sitteth upon the throne the throne and unto the Lamb. This description is given by the redeemed host, showing us that they understand that salvation belongs to two beings, the Father and the Son. This is in direct confirmation of what we read in the scriptures. God's people must understand this truth. They must be kept by this truth from the deception of Satan in the last days. You see, Satan is out on an attack to destroy this truth, as we shall see. He's out to deceive the world and God's people, if possible, in order to confuse their worship, so that they would give credit, honor, and praise to more than just the two divine beings that the Scriptures brings out, the Father and the Son. This recognition of the Father and the Son as the only divine beings is a universal recognition of all the creatures of heaven and earth. We read a wonderful description about this in Revelation chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. And every creature which is in heaven 
and on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing, and honor, and glory, and power, be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb for ever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. This description, given in the book of Revelation, confirms that when we get to heaven, we will join in with the worship of the heavenly beings in giving glory and honor to only two divine beings, Him that sitteth on the throne and the Lamb forever and ever. It's interesting that the four living creatures at the end of this scene of worship say Amen. And they say Amen without recognizing anybody else that is to be worshipped. You see, friends, all heaven knows that only the Father and the Son are worthy of receiving worship and praise because only the Father and the Son are divine by nature. That is because the Father, the great source of all, had an only begotten Son. This is not the only place in the scriptures that tells us this. The book of Revelation has other examples that confirms the truth that there are only two divine beings who are recognized in the scriptures and God's people need to be in harmony with that description and with that revelation that is given in the Bible. Let's read the closing chapters of Revelation Chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. It says, And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. What a wonderful description given of the redeemed throughout all eternity, where they will only be worshipping the Father and the Son. Friends, the Bible conclusion is very plain. The Father and the Son alone are to be exalted and recognized. There is no one else. There are no other divine beings that we are given instruction to recognize, to worship, to praise and honor. And it's on this very point that Satan is seeking to bring deception. As we said, we're going to look at what the spirit of prophecy has to say about this wonderful point. We already looked at some examples in the spirit of prophecy, but we want to look at a few more examples that will confirm beyond a shadow of a doubt what revelation has given to us regarding how many divine beings are in existence. Many of us who are familiar with the writings of the spirit of prophecy and the ministry of Ellen G. White are familiar perhaps with some of the history with which started the movement of the Millerites, the Advent movement, and how God was behind that movement. And finally God, through Revelation instructed his people regarding certain aspects of what he would like them to do and revealing them to them vital truths for their salvation and their preparation to meet Jesus. Before Alan G. White was called to the office of a prophetess, God revealed instruction through other persons. This instruction is perhaps not as, not as well known or recognized and many of us might not be familiar with it. But the wonderful and amazing thing is that this instruction is also in harmony with what the scriptures has revealed in our study regarding the issue of worship, particularly regarding how many divine beings there are. Many of us are familiar with the name of William Foy. Some of us perhaps have heard it in passing, but are not entirely sure what it has to do with. William Foy was a man who was selected by God who received vision before Mrs. White. It's interesting that his visions were actually printed and shared. Let's see how Mrs. White refers to William Foy and gives us an insight as to how God revealed these things to him. We read about it in Manuscript Releases, Volume 17, uh, page 95. It says, Then another time there was Foy that had had visions. He had four visions. They were written out and published. And it is queer that I cannot find them in any of my books, but we have moved so many times. He had four. Here we see that the servant of the Lord tells us that William Foy received visions from God that were published. You see, many of us think that William Foy, like Hazen Foss, rejected the prophetic message and so it moved on to Ellen White. But the fact is, he published his visions. He was obedient to the heavenly vision that God gave him. Not only that, but the servant of the Lord gives us an incident where she actually met William Foy. Let's read it together in Manuscript Releases once again, volume 17, page 96. Question, did you ever have an interview with him? Answer, I had an interview with him. He wanted to see me and I talked with him a little. They had appointed for me to speak that night and I did not know what, that he was there. 
I did not know at first that he was there. While I was talking, I heard a shout, and he is a great tall man, and the roof was rather low, and he jumped right up and down, and oh, he praised the Lord, praised the Lord. It was just what he had seen, just what he had seen. But they extolled him so, I think it hurt him, and I do not know what became of him. What an interesting description where the servant of the Lord was relaying what God gave her. And right there in the congregation, William Foy was present and he started jumping up and down and saying, this was what God had shown me as well. And then she tells us and gives us an insight as to why he no longer was receiving visions. Because he was extolled so much, he was praised so much that it hurt him. And in order to save him, God withdrew the visions from him. But the important point is he had these visions and he published them. It's interesting to read the account of one of those visions that deals particularly with this question that God revealed to William Foy before he revealed it to his servant, Ellen White. Let's read it together in William Foy's own account recorded in the Christian Experience, page 11, paragraph 1. It says, At the right side of the mountain appeared a mighty angel with raiment like unto burnished gold. His legs were like pillars of flaming fire. His countenance was like the lightning, and his crown gave light to this boundless place. And those that had not passed through death could not look upon his countenance. I then beheld upon the side of this mount letters like pure gold, which said, The Father and the Son. Directly under these letters stood the mighty angel, whose crown lighted up the place, and all the heavenly host worshipped at his feet round about the mountain. This vision of heaven that William Foy was given reveals to us vital information. He saw the mountain of God, and he saw this angel with a crown that lit up the place, and this angel was worshipped. We know that this is referring to none other than Christ Jesus our Lord. He is a divine being worthy of worship not just a mere angel, but the position of him being an angel as the messenger of God is confirmed many times in the scriptures. This description gives us something that is written on the mount. It says the Father and the Son. Isn't that interesting? That God has confirmed the same truth through William Foy, that there are only two divine beings, the Father and the Son, and only they are to be worshiped. This mount that he is referring to in this vision we are familiar with because it's the same mount which Lucifer wanted to sit upon. We read about it in Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 13. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. This mount of the congregation where Lucifer wanted to sit is where the Father and the Son sit, where they alone are worshipped. Lucifer wanted to sit there and to also receive worship along with the Father and the Son. This mount is also the same place where the redeemed will stand to worship the Father and the Son. We read about that in Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion, and with him a hundred and forty and four thousand, having his Father's name written in their foreheads. This description is in perfect harmony with what William Foy saw and what the Bible gave us. This is again confirmed in the next messenger that God selected to receive instruction to relate to His people, and that is Ellen White. Let's turn now to the writings of the Spirit Prophecy that we're familiar with as the writings of Ellen White and see how she confirms these findings and is in perfect harmony with the scriptures that we have seen. Let's look at how many divine beings are revealed in the Spirit of Prophecy. What we're going to do is we're going to travel from the beginning of the revelation that God gave. And we're going to move rather quickly and see how God has revealed the same truth time again without it being changing. That means we will start at the very beginning, before the rebellion, before sin entered the world. And we'll see what God has revealed through His servant. And we will travel all the way down to the end when everything will be restored again. And we will see a consistent revelation of how many divine beings are recorded and revealed to us in the spirit of prophecy. Let's begin by looking at what heaven was like before the war, before the creation of man. We read about it in Patriarchs and Prophets, page 36. 
The Son of God shared the Father's throne, and the glory of the eternal, self-existent one encircled both. Before the assembled inhabitants of heaven, the King declared that none but Christ, the only begotten of God, could fully enter into His purposes, and to Him it was committed to execute the mighty counsels of His will. The Son of God had wrought the Father's will in the creation of all the hosts of heaven, and to Him, as well as to God, their homage and allegiance was due. This is a plain instruction before the entrance of sin, that only two beings occupied the throne, only two beings received worship and praise. This is the Father and the Son. Let's keep reading about the same time period in the Great Controversy, page 493. Christ, the Word, the only begotten of God, was one with the Eternal Father, one in nature, in character, and in purpose the only being in all the universe that could enter into all the counsels and purposes of God. What a plain revelation. Before sin ever entered, Christ was the only being in all the universe who could enter into the counsels of God. We already saw one such council is called the Council of Peace. This is abundant confirmation that there are only two divine beings. But friends, there is even more to follow. Let's see how God has not left us in doubt about this question. He has revealed abundantly so that we have no mistake, so that we cannot be confused over the issue of worship when it comes to God and His Son. Let's read in the story of redemption, page 15. Lucifer in heaven before his rebellion was a high and exalted angel, next in honor to God's dear Son. This is an interesting description of Lucifer. It tells us that Lucifer was the third-ranking being in heaven. He came next to Christ Jesus. The Father, the great source of all, is the sovereign of the universe. He is the head of the family in heaven and earth. His Son, His only begotten Son, inheriting His divine nature, of course, shares and joins the Father in sitting on the throne and in receiving worship and adoration. Next came Lucifer, a created being who desired worship but who is not worthy to receive worship, because he is not a divine being. This is interesting confirmation that there are only two divine beings. The third highest being was none other than Lucifer, a created being. But let's look a little further and see what the Review and Herald, 1895, reveals about this question. Speaking of Satan, our Lord says that he had abode not in the truth. He was once the covering cherub, glorious in beauty and holiness, he was next to Christ in exaltation and character. This confirms to us that Lucifer was the next being after Christ in exaltation and character. This confirms abundantly that there were only two divine beings. The third highest being in heaven was a created angel, Lucifer by name. In the war in heaven, Lucifer rebelled against the order of God. He wanted to reform the government of God, particularly to insert himself in a position of worship on the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. He wanted to reorganize how things ran in heaven. And in his rebellion, we also have a declaration and a revelation that confirms the fact that there were only two divine beings. Let's read it again in the Spirit of Prophecy, Testimonies, Volume 5, page 291. When Satan became disaffected in heaven, he did not lay his complaint before God and Christ, but he went among the angels who thought him perfect and represented that God had done him injustice in preferring Christ to himself. Lucifer did not lay his complaints before God and Christ. The two beings who were in exaltation above him, the two divine beings who received worship and glory from all the heavenly hosts. Let's read another statement and see what else is revealed about this wondrous topic. Testimonies, Volume 3, page 328. Satan had sympathizers in heaven and took large numbers of the angels with him. God and Christ and heavenly angels were on one side and Satan on the other. Notwithstanding the infinite power and majesty of God and Christ, angels became disaffected. The insinuations of Satan took effect and they really came to believe that the Father and the Son were their enemies and that Satan was their benefactor. What an amazing statement. 
It tells us all the parties that were involved in the war in heaven. The Father and the Son and the good angels were on one side, and Lucifer and his angels were on the other. And repeatedly we're told that God and Christ, the Father and the Son, were the ones who were in charge. This reveals and confirms that Lucifer was rebelling against the system that God had in place. The system where only the Father and the Son were recognized as the divine beings and worshipped as such. Let's read further in Testimonies, Volume 3, page 115. Satan, in his rebellion, took a third part of the angels. They turned from the Father and from his Son and united with the instigator of rebellion. Once again, clear statement that hardly needs any comment. Let's keep reading and see how this progressed in the war. Review and Herald, 1895, tells us, it was with Satan that self-exaltation had its origin. He became jealous of Christ and falsely accused him, and then laid blame upon the Father. He was envious of the position that was held by Christ and the Father, and he turned from his allegiance to the commander of heaven and lost all his high and holy estate. Though the angels had a knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, though they were happy in the glorious service which they did for the King of heaven, yet through his crooked representations of Christ and the Father, the evil one deceived a great company of angels, drew them into sympathy with himself, and associated them with himself in rebellion. This again is a clear indication that Satan was warring with the two divine beings who occupied the throne of heaven, the Father and the Son. So successful was his deception that a third of the angels were convinced to join him. So successful will be his deceptions in the last days that all who do not heed God's instruction will be deceived and will follow him. That is why God has given us ample evidence and instruction in the Bible and he has confirmed it in the spirit of prophecy. Let's now look at things as they progressed after the war in heaven and the creation of man, but before the fall of man. Let's see what God has revealed about himself, particularly about how many divine beings there are before man fell into sin. We read about it in Desire of Ages, page 769. In the beginning, the Father and the Son had rested upon the Sabbath after their work of creation. What a wonderful statement. Two beings rested on the Sabbath. The two beings that were involved in the creation of the world, the Father and the Son. There's no one else. And it's these two beings who will also be recognized all the way till the end. Let's read further and see what the story of redemption tells us in page 22. The holy pair, that's Adam and Eve, united with them, the angels, and raised their voices in harmonious songs of love, praise, and adoration to the Father and His dear Son for the tokens of love which surrounded them. Adam and Eve worshipped and praised and sang songs of love and adoration to the Father and the Son, to two divine beings. You see, Adam and Eve understood the truth. Their worship was in harmony with the worshipers in heaven. Satan, when he deceived them, caused a confusion over this worship, and that's why there is confusion today over who we worship, as we shall see. But let's keep reading and see what the Signs of the Times, 1879, tells us. Adam and Eve assured the angels that they would never transgress the express command of God, for it was their highest pleasure to do His will. The angels united with them in holy strains of harmonious music, and as their songs pealed forth from blissful Eden, Satan heard their joyful adoration of the Father and the Son. Satan was listening to those songs of praise and worship and adoration that went to the Father and the Son. Man, in his perfect condition, worshipped only the Father and the Son, and no one else. This is important for us to keep in mind. Things progressed though, and let's see what happened on earth as uh, things are revealed. In Signs of the Times, May 12, 1890. Notice what it says. With what intense interest the whole universe watched the conflict that was to decide the position of Adam and Eve. How attentively the angels listened to the words of Satan. They asked themselves, will the holy pair transfer their faith and love from the Father and Son to Satan? Will they accept his falsehoods as truth? Here was the contest. 
Will Adam and Eve abandon their allegiance and loyalty to the Father and the Son, the only two divine beings, and give it to Satan? We all know the sad answer to that question. And yet God has not hidden the truth about who He really is, even after man fell. He continued to reveal to us, and as we shall see now, some more statements after the fall of man that confirm the same truth of there being only two divine beings, the Father and the Son. Signs of the Times, 1895, tells us, But in the transgression of man, both the Father and the Son were dishonored. When man fell, the two divine beings who created all things were dishonored, the Father and the Son. Let's keep reading. Special Testimonies on Education, page 21. The human family cost God and His Son, Jesus Christ, an infinite price. We saw that when it told us in the Scriptures that the Council of Peace was between them both. It was an infinite price that the Father and the Son went to in order to redeem man. The two divine beings who formulated in this plan of love a plan of salvation to redeem man should he fall. We need to keep in mind the wonderful meaning and the impact of this precious truth as it means to us in how much God has loved us in giving us His only begotten Son. This is not the only place we read about this information. Let's keep reading and see the abundance, the overabundance of revelation that God has given us so that we might not be deceived. The Bible Echo of 1895 tells us, No man, nor even the highest angel, can estimate the great cost it is known only to the Father and the Son. That's the cost of our salvation. Nobody else knows fully what it costs to save us except the Father and the Son. It's an infinite cost, and only infinite beings can really comprehend it. That means that they are divine beings, the Father and the Son. There's no one else. Let's read on. In the Youth's Instructor of 1900, we see, Father and Son are pledged to fulfill the terms of the everlasting covenant. We read that earlier, and we see that this confirms the same truth once again. Let's continue and see how God has revealed this information to His people in the last days. Has this revelation changed? Has God given new light on this topic that tells us that there are more divine beings that we are to recognize? The answer is no. God is revealing the same truth because truth doesn't change. And in the last days, to the remnant of His people, God gives the following instruction. Testimonies, Volume 8, page 157. In the Bible, every duty is made plain. Every lesson given is comprehensible. Every lesson reveals to us the Father and the Son. The Word is able to make all wise unto salvation. Every lesson reveals the Father and the Son, the two divine beings that we are to recognize. Further, we read the following. In the 1888 Messages, page 886. Let the missionaries of the cross proclaim that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, who is Jesus Christ, the Son of the infinite God. This needs to be proclaimed throughout every church in our land. Christians need to know this and not put man where God should be, that they may no longer be worshippers of idols, but of the living God. Idolatry exists in our churches. This revelation tells us that this truth is to be proclaimed in all the land, that there is one God and that there is only His Son, the infinite Son of the living God. This confirms to us the truth that there are only two divine beings, only two divine beings that need to be recognized as such. Let's see how this is further revealed again as we continue reading further in the spirit of prophecy. In Youth's Instructor of 1898, we have a very plain statement. The Father and the Son alone are to be exalted. This is in perfect harmony with what we found in the Scriptures. Only the Father and the Son are to be exalted because they are the only divine beings. It is Satan's purpose and deception for us to misunderstand certain aspects about God so that we might worship more than just the Father and the Son in spirit and in truth. This he has done through his system of apostasy that we have looked at the system and the power that is referred to in the scriptures as Great Babylon. This apostate system, the Romish system, is the tool that Satan has used to bring in deception about who God is, particularly regarding worship. Worship that is given outside of God. Let's read about it in the Athanasian Creed, in the New Catechism, page 67 and 68. It says, Now this is the Catholic faith, 
we worship one God in the Trinity and the Trinity in unity, without either confusing the persons or dividing the substance. For the person of the Father is one, the Son's is another, the Holy Spirit is another, but the Godhead of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one, their glory equal, their majesty co-eternal. Did you catch that? The worship that is given in the Roman system is given to three different persons, the Father and the Son and someone else, the Holy Spirit, who is recognized as a different person to the Father and the Son. And yet the Bible does not reveal that to us. A correct understanding of the Spirit is so simple that a young child can understand it. The Spirit of God is none other than the very person and presence of God Himself. It is not a different person or being to Him. But Satan, through this clever deception of separating the Spirit of God from God and making Him another God, is causing people to worship not just the Father and the Son, but someone else. We need to be careful so that we are not confused by the use of biblical terms without the use of biblical concepts. It's important that our terms match our concepts. This deception is revealed in the fact that Rome actually worships and prays to the Holy Spirit, recognizing Him as a different person to the Father and the Son, something that is totally contrary to the Scriptures and something which deals with the issue of worship. Let's read it together in the book, The, Vatican, uh, the Documents of Vatican II, in page 793. This is what we're told. The prayer of Pope John the 23rd to the Holy Spirit for the success of the Ecumenical Council. And this is what the prayer says. O Holy Spirit, sent by the Father in the name of Jesus, who art present in the church and thus infallibly guided, pour forth, we pray, the fullness of thy gifts upon the Ecumenical Council. We pray also for those sheep who are not now of the one fold of Jesus Christ, that even as they glory in the name of Christian, they may come at last to unity under the governance of the one shepherd. Amen. Isn't that amazing? The Vatican II Council, which is famous for instituting the plan to bring about a reunion of all the Protestant churches back under the governance of Mother Rome. Here we see this Vatican II Council was in session and the Pope, the highest head in the Roman Church, prays and worships the Holy Spirit with no Bible instruction whatsoever. Now we know which spirit is operating through the system. We know which spirit is going about to unite the kings of the earth together into one place for the final battle. This spirit is being prayed to and worshipped using biblical names, but in de deforming and changing the truth of God into a lie and thereby deceiving people. Friends, any worship that goes outside the Father and the Son is worship that will be claimed by Satan, no matter what name you might give to it. This is a vital point to keep in mind. And I know that this is a point that you will not take lightly. And this point is not said lightly because the Scripture has spoken about this matter. The spirit that is appealed to in Rome to assist in their work in uniting the world, we know according to the scriptures, is the dragon. The dragon is appearing to them behind the mask and is masking himself behind the biblical name of the Holy Spirit. We need to have the correct understanding of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God and Christ. And we need to recognize the false understanding that Satan has introduced about the Holy Spirit in making him a different person to the Father and the Son where he can receive worship. This is instruction that is plainly not recognized or given in the Scripture. We cannot presume with the question of worship. The dangerous thing is that even among us today, we have followed in the track of Rome in adopting the same concept and the same activity of worship that is not given by the Scriptures. Instruction that is not given in the Scriptures, and yet we presume in doing it. Let's read about it in this book entitled The Trinity. On page 273 of this book, we find this alarming statement. It says, The oneness in nature and character of the three persons of the Godhead raises the very useful question of prayer, 
praise and worship. But what about direct prayer to the Holy Spirit? While we have no clear example of direct command to pray to the Spirit in Scripture, doing so does have, in principle, some implicit biblical support. It only seems logical that God's people can pray directly to and worship the Holy Spirit. Isn't that alarming? If you listen carefully to that statement, you will find a very apparent self-contradiction. The self-contradiction is the admission that we know the Bible doesn't support or give us instruction to pray to the Spirit, but we think it's biblical. Friends, that's a contradiction. And here, this contradiction results from the fact that the concept of God that is believed by many today is a concept that is foreign to the Scriptures. It's a concept of God that recognizes three co-equal and co-eternal persons who all should receive worship and praise, even prayer. And in this practice, we are alarmingly following the footsteps of Rome. The Bible never gives any instruction to give worship, praise, and adoration to anyone outside the Father and the Son. They are the only two divine beings. The Holy Spirit of God is not a different being to God. It is His very own person. It's His very own presence. And it's for this reason that the Scriptures never reveals to us that we are to pray, praise, or worship Him. Friends, this instruction that we have just read in this book is in direct violation of the instructions of the Scriptures. This is dangerous because when we presume on the question of worship, we become dangerously confused by the deception of Satan. And this is exactly what has happened. But praise God for the revelation that He has given in the Bible and in the spirit of prophecy. Let's go back to the spirit of prophecy and see how this is further revealed to be stark error. Let's read together of the restoration of all things. In the Great Controversy, page 676, the people of God are privileged to hold open communion with the Father and the Son. Two divine beings. That's who we hold open communion with. There is no more barriers. There is no more veil. There is nothing hidden. Our open communion is with the Father and the Son. The two divine beings that we are to recognize. We're not to recognize anyone else when it comes to worship and praise. Let's look at some wonderful statements as we close this message that I pray will inspire your heart, that you will want to be there, and that you will want to follow God's instruction and be faithful unto the end. Let's read in Review and Herald, 1891. A sinner is not raised a saint, neither is a saint raised a sinner. The sinner could not be happy in companionship of the saints and light with Jesus, with the Lord of hosts, for on every side will be heard the songs of praise and thanksgiving, and honor will be ascribed to the Father and the Son. What a beautiful statement. In heaven, honor will be ascribed to the Father and the Son. This is when all things are finished. This is when sin is over. This is when we are entering into the eternal realm where we will live forever and ever. We will continually recognize and have fellowship with the Father and the Son. And this wonderful statement found in The Desire of Ages, page 769, tells us, Heaven and earth will unite in praise, as from one Sabbath to another, the nations of the saved shall bow in joyful worship to God and the Lamb. Friends, in heaven we will worship on the Sabbath, and we will unite in worshiping the Father and the Son. This is who we need to recognize when we come in worship on the Sabbath, the only beings that the Bible revealed to us. We will continue to do this in heaven. Should we not start here on earth? Isn't this what we pray when we ask God that His will, His will may be done in earth as it is in heaven? God wants the worshipers on earth to be in harmony with the worshipers in heaven. It's vital for us to follow God's instruction so that we can be safe from the deceptions of the enemy. Especially if we keep the true day of God, the Sabbath day, we need to be worshiping God aright, not falsely. Let's keep reading and see this wonderful statement in the Australasian Union Conference record of 1903. It says, In your hands will be placed a golden harp, and touching its strings you will join with the redeemed host in filling all heaven 
with songs of praise to God and His Son. What a wonderful, wonderful promise. One day, faithful, you will be given a harp and you will play on your harp and you will sing songs of praise and adoration to the Father and to the Son. Praise the Lord for that. Our final statement is one of my favorite statements that gives us a beautiful insight and a beautiful picture that we should all do our utmost in being faithful to God here that we might be found in that place. It comes from the wonderful book, Child Guidance, page 568. The years will move on in gladness. Over the scene, the morning stars will sing together and the sons of God will shout for joy. While God and Christ will unite in proclaiming, there shall be no more sin, neither shall there be any more death. What a wonderful, wonderful statement. God and Christ, the highest authority, the divine beings of heaven will proclaim that there will be no more sin and no more death. Friends, this is the promise of the scriptures to all those who are faithful. But God wants us to understand these things here on earth before we get to heaven. Because here is where the battle will be. Here is where the challenge of Satan will be. And it is here that God has revealed all this information to us so that we can be true worshipers, to worship Him in spirit and in truth through His Son, Jesus Christ. I urge you and I appeal to you that you study this wonderful truth out for yourself that you might not be deceived by the deceptions of Satan. In our limited time here, we could only share a little of the amount of evidence that is present. We could share a lot more, but time does not permit us. But I trust and I pray that the Spirit of God will prompt you to search and to find and to see if these things are so for yourself because the time is at hand. The issue of worship and deception of worship is deceiving the whole world. It has even come into our beloved church. Friends, you cannot afford to presume when it comes to worship. You cannot afford to delay. You cannot afford to use the mentality of saying, I will just do what I know here now and when I get to heaven, I will find out. This is an insult to God because God has revealed to us what heaven will be like because He wants us to be in harmony with heaven here on earth. This is what we pray and this is what I desire for you, everyone. I pray and I ask that you will take this to heart and that the Spirit of God will bring to your attention the evidences of truth that you also might be a worshiper in spirit and in truth. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.